Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that no matter what uh, day and age we live in, no matter what the struggles are in our personal lives and in our culture, we know that your word remains steadfast. We thank you for its truths, that we can anchor our souls into them, that we can learn from you. Lord, we thank you that you are our good and perfect Father. We know that sometimes you will use discipline in our lives, not because you want to make our lives more difficult, uh, because that makes you happy somehow, but because you, you love us and you want to grow us and you want to take us where you found us and bring us to the place you want us to be. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you do that in our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One year when my younger brother and I were still in elementary school, uh, we decided to pull a prank on my dad for April Fool's Day. But instead of doing something normal like any other kid would do, like put some fake vomit somewhere, something that a normal kid would do, uh, we decided something else was better. When our father first came home from a long day of work and a long commute on the public bus from Auburn to Syracuse where he worked as a museum curator, we, desi we decided to target him with news about how we had both behaved really badly at school that day and had gotten into a lot of trouble with our teachers. We just decided it would be a good idea to hit him with that as soon as he walked through the door. And as I look back on that experience, I am absolutely positive that that was the last thing my dad wanted to have to deal with coming home from a long day of work. And on top of that, we knew we had made, it all of, we, we had made all of it up. So while my dad sat my younger brother down in the living room, I was off in the kitchen laughing my head off, thinking that this was the most brilliant April Fool's joke in the history of April Fool's Day. I am sure my dad loved listening to that, me laughing my head off while he was having a conversation with my brother. But what I remember most about that experience is that even after putting in a full day's work with a 90-minute, one-way commute on the public bus and coming home to news that came out of nowhere about your son's awful behavior at school that day, my dad never lost his cool. He never blew up at us or flew off the handle. What was important to him was sitting each of us down and finding out from us what had happened so he could explain why it was wrong and why we shouldn't behave that way again. When we think about our perfect heavenly father, when he knows we've messed up yet again, as we are his children, he doesn't blow up at us. He doesn't fly off the handle towards us. Instead, Scripture tells us he's very patient and long-suffering with us. He will discipline us to get our attention. We will have to deal with consequences for our behavior. But he knows exactly what will be the most effective way of getting through to us. In our passage this morning, Paul alludes to the fact that this is how God works as our Father in our spiritual walk. And because of that, Paul imitates Jesus and how he has been responding to the reports coming from Corinth about his spiritual children. Instead of just blowing up at them, Paul has been spiritually parenting them with wisdom in order to be the most effective in getting them to look at themselves and make some changes. 
By the end of our passage, we'll see how this connects with how God may discipline us, not for our destruction, but for our rescue. Similar to last week's passage and theme, this may not be the most pleasant of topics today, but one we all as believers must know and be reminded of as imperfect children of most holy God. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the appeal. Like I said, we're finishing up chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians. If you could turn there in your Bibles, if you brought your Bibles with you today. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there so we can see this all together as a family. Uh, Chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. We referenced this verse last week. But Paul had included in his section just before what he writes here in verse 14 some words dripping with irony. Do you remember those uh, from last week? Against the spirit of arrogance prevalent in the Corinthian church. Here he's making it clear that he did not write those words in order to humiliate them or shame them, but to admonish or teach or reveal to them what they may not have seen or understood before about the importance of humility to their Christian lives. Again, in this verse, he brings in the parental theme. He notes that his whole purpose in bringing up this topic, along with how he's addressing it, is purposeful. And it's done in a fatherly way, the way their heavenly father does it. The word used for admonish here is very closely related to the word used elsewhere that is also often translated as admonish, as in 1 Corinthians 10.11, later on in this letter. There, in connection with the discipline inflicted upon Israel for their rebellion towards Moses, Paul writes, In the KJV, now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition. That's that similar word that's also translated as admonish here. For our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Translated elsewhere, it says now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our, in in the place of admonition, it says instruction, right? Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. There we see that the closely related word is more so connected with instruction. Admonition is more closely related to instruction. That's what aids us in our understanding of Paul's use of the word as translated as admonish in uh, chapter 4, verse 14, the one we just read. Paul's whole purpose in how he's addressed this divisive situation going on in Corinth was to come first with instruction to appeal to their minds and explaining why they were behaving so unchristlike. That was the greatest form of apostolic discipline that Paul could use metaphorically sitting down with them and explaining and instructing them from God's word about their wrong behavior. In this way, he was giving them the benefit of the doubt that they didn't fully understand the importance of humility to their Christian walk and getting rid of residual pride and appealing to their reasoning to lead them to see the error of their ways. The ultimate hope would be for them to realize their error, turn from it, and that would be the end of it. Paul comes right out and tells them, listen guys, I've tried to be as gentle and reasonable with you from the get-go. 
I even went through the trouble of laying down the theological foundation for complete humility in the way we think about everything, even when it comes down to our basic salvation and sanctification, that it has everything to do with God and nothing to do with us. Why? Why did Paul approach things this way? Because Paul wanted to appeal to them as a reasonable father teaches and instructs his children. He uses that very similar word again when he gives practical instruction to the fathers in the Ephesian church. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction, admonition of the Lord. Paul explains further in verse 15, read along with me, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Now in order to truly understand what Paul is really getting at here, we have to go back in time to when we looked at Galatians 3, 23 through 26. It was the second New Testament book we looked at after I came here following James, since Galatians was most likely the first recorded letter by Paul we have in the New Testament. Paul's instruction to the churches in Galatia in that passage written about six and a half to seven years before this letter, before 1 Corinthians, will unlock what Paul is really getting at here in verse 15. This is what he writes to the churches in Galatia. He says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, under the Mosaic, the Jewish law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Same word that's used in verse 15 in our passage today. To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. What was Paul talking about there? If you remember from about a couple of years ago, these verses were comparing the purpose of the Jewish law for humanity, and specifically the Jewish people, with the new sonship offered to all of humanity through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word translated as tutor in the NASB in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians, it's the exact same word. The NIV probably has the best translation uh, with the word guardian, but even still, without the background, it does not truly capture the full meaning behind this reference. In the Greco-Roman world, in well-to-do families, the father would take the slave that he trusted the most and make him the guardian of his sons. This person would follow this, accompany the sons to school, would, would tutor them in their schoolwork, but he was there to make sure they didn't get into trouble. That's what he was mostly there for. To, to keep them out of trouble. The guardian would teach morals to the boys in that family and help them with their schoolwork and, again, try to keep them out of trouble. The guardian would be respected by the boys but obviously did not have the position or inheritance that the father of the family did. Once the boys became of age, the guardian was no longer needed and for all intents and purposes, the, these boys assumed the rights of inheritance-receiving sons at that point. 
the, the guardian was no longer needed. In Galatians, Paul's point was that the Jewish law took the temporary place of sonship in the Holy Spirit offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It served as the temporary morality teacher, keeping people out of the trouble for the Jewish people until the, the time came for them to receive the full rights as children of God through faith in their fellow inheritance receiver, the full son of God. In this transition, the right of becoming an inheritance receiving child of God was opened up to everyone, regardless of background. The emphasis in Galatians was on the temporality of the Jewish law and the fulfillment and therefore of being a child of God through faith in Jesus. That's what the emphasis on Galatians is. In our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul's emphasis is on the temporality and lack of meaningfulness the relationships of other ministers and teachers had with the believers in Corinth in comparison to his relationship with them. Sure, the Corinthians had and would have plenty of good and biblical teachers who would come through and settle in among them, but only one, namely Paul, had the background of being one of their spiritual fathers and being the first one to introduce spiritual redemption and freedom through faith in Jesus to them. That would always be one of the most meaningful relationships in Paul's eyes and one that he uses not for his own pride and loyalty camp establishment, but to appeal to them to turn from what they're doing to obedience to God. Paul's fatherly appeal to his spiritual children in Corinth was this, verse 16. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. As we've looked at elsewhere, when Paul uses this phrase, he's obviously not using it in pride because he thinks he's better than everyone else at this Christian thing. He is using it in the same way he uses it further on in this same letter when he says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. That's who he's ultimately pointing to, is Christ. If the Corinthians found it daunting and too high of an endeavor to follow the example of Christ, because after all, one could reason, well, he's the Son of God, and I'm supposed to do everything he did? Paul says, well then, if that seems too daunting for you, follow me. Because all I'm seeking to do with my whole life is to follow the example of Christ. Just as Jesus exemplified humility in everything he did, I am also seeking to exemplify humility, and the same expectation goes for you too. In fact, verse 17, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Although debated, according to one biblical scholar, it's possible that it's Timothy who is sent by Paul as the bearer of this letter of 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9, we read that he tells the Corinthians, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. From this, we know that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians from where? Ephesus, most likely during his two and a half year stint there during his third missionary journey. 
We also read about Paul's time in Ephesus, according to Acts 19.22, that he sent Timothy and another man named Erastus from Ephesus to the area that included Corinth. According to one biblical scholar, it's possible that Timothy bore this letter with him, for Paul says towards the end of 1 Corinthians, when Timothy comes, don't intimidate him. He is doing the Lord's work just as I am. The literal translation of this verse reads, On account of this I sent to you Timothy, which could imply that Timothy is the one holding this letter. That makes it a little clearer that Timothy could be the one, the very, uh, could very well be the one who brought this letter with him. Not only that, but it would explain why Paul felt the need to tell the Corinthians, don't bully him, don't mess with him, don't intimidate him. The words contained in 1 Corinthians, if we were the ones listening to those words, would probably be enough for anyone to take out their frustration with Paul on the one who brought the message. It's, a, it's as if Paul is using the classic phrase, don't shoot the messenger. Timothy is doing the Lord's work, just as I, your spiritual father, am. In fact, Paul tells them to take a good look at Timothy. For Timothy was the one who was imitating Paul's teaching on the humility, love, and message of Jesus very well. If they wanted to know how they were supposed to look in their imitation of Paul, who in turn was imitating Christ, they should look no further than Timothy. Paul flat out says in verse 17 that anything Timothy teaches them in his position as spiritual teacher and encourager is trustworthy. For he is a faithful disciple of Paul's teaching, which is revealed from Jesus himself by way of the Holy Spirit. So we first talked about the appeal. How Paul appealed to the Corinthians in this fatherly position. And secondly, we'll talk about the appointment. Verse 18, Paul says, Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, as if I wasn't going to make an appointment with you. Apparently there were some in the Corinthian church, according to one biblical scholar, perhaps those leaders in the church who were the ones mainly instigating the division into human minister loyalty camps, they were trying to convince the members of the church that Paul did not care about them anymore and he wasn't going to visit them. They may have been using that false information as leverage for other members to listen to them and their divisive messages. But Paul says that couldn't be further from the truth. Verse 19, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. According to one biblical scholar, this is a warning. To those who in their arrogance believed Paul would not return to call these specific leaders out on their faults and divisive teaching. Rather than a simple, I'll find out. Rather than that, if these divisive leaders were merely people who made grand speeches and had no real spiritual power to back up their false teaching, Paul already knew the answer to that. He already knew there wasn't any power to back up their false teaching. This is a warning that it would be made publicly crystal clear to everyone there about their false teaching. Remember, all this time, and he's come out and said it, 
All this time, Paul had been wise and sensitive in how he addressed this raging, divisive problem in the Corinthian church. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how Paul purposely used general language and referring to himself and Apollos and his teaching about how wrong this arrogance and division was. But now, before moving on to the next topic that needs correction, Paul warns these leaders as their spiritual father, do you really want me, and therefore everyone else, to publicly acknowledge the fact that all of your great speeches about what you're promoting are completely bereft of the power of the kingdom of God and simply a con for what you want to promote? You really want everyone to publicly acknowledge that? If you continue to do what you're doing after you read this letter, when I come to you, that's exactly what's going to happen. I'm warning you now. According to one biblical scholar, Paul knew that his gentle words in addressing this topic would be heeded by some, and they would disband their divisive behavior. However, he also knew that there would be some, perhaps the specific leaders of this uh, loyalty division, who in their arrogance would not heed the gentle approach and words Paul had used up to this point. They would need stronger an active discipline that the power of the kingdom of God afforded to Paul in his apostolic position. That's what then leads Paul to his closing words, verse 21. Uh, uh, verses 20 and 21. For the kingdom of God does not consist, consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul would not be coming in active discipline on his own, but with the power of the kingdom of God invested in him as an apostle to back him up. The question is pointed. This problem is destructive enough and already has been to warrant one of two choices for you when I return to you. In my position as apostle and spiritual father of you, would you rather me come with the rod of authority in strong and active discipline of you? Or would you rather heed the gentle approach in words I've just concluded writing to you and we can have a pleasant visit together when I come? One of those two things is going to happen. It's your choice. We've already seen how Paul sought to live his life in imitation of who God is. This extends to how he parented and disciplined his spiritual children. And as we see throughout the rest of God's word, we can see a glimpse into how God will discipline us as his children. We catch the foundational glimpse into God's discipline of his children in Proverbs 3.12. And we read, for the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. If we see some trials and the testing of our faith going on in our life, this does not mean that God does not love us anymore. Completely contrary to that, it means that God loves us. If we see trials and testing of our faith, it means that God loves us. That's the foundational glimpse into God's discipline of, of us as his children. Earthly fathers may or may not be a good reflection of this, but when it comes to God, his love is the foundation for his, his discipline of us. 
That means that when trials or tests of faith come into our lives, God is not bullying us, neglectful of us, or spiteful towards us. Nor does it mean that he no longer loves us. Like I already said, discipline is the proof that God does love us and we are his children. The author of Hebrews brings that out for us when they put it this way. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his child at all. That's the foundational truth we must always keep in mind. Now what's the purpose of God's discipline of us as his children? What's his whole point? Hebrews also reveals that to us when, he's, when it says, God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. I think we can all agree on that. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So not only is God's purpose for his discipline to be for us to become more and more like his holiness, but through that, it's for our own good that we may reap a peaceful harvest of right living. What paranoia and having to constantly look over your shoulder and stay up at night wondering if you're going to get caught plagues those who try to constantly shrug off God's discipline. But when we allow God to discipline us, when we step out of line, and we learn from that discipline, a clear and peaceful conscience will be the reward. I think I can speak for all of us that a clear and peaceful conscience is one of the most treasured things we can have in this earthly life. Amen? We know the foundational truth of God's discipline. We know the purpose of God's discipline. So now how does God go about his discipline? It depends on the specific situation, but generally we can look at Paul's imitation of God's fatherhood and how he approached spiritually disciplining the divisive Corinthians. Paul did not start out by flying off the handle at his spiritual children and lighting right into the specific instigators. He started out with what? He started out with gentleness. He started out with instruction. And for the most part, that's how God starts out his discipline with us. He gives us his instruction. He makes clear what his expectations of us are and instructs us in how to obey those commandments. The Corinthians deep down probably knew they were not following Jesus' example of humility. But they allowed their pride to cloud their vision of that. Pride does that very quickly and very easily, doesn't it? Pride is the number one agent that aids us in our self-justification for disobedience to God. Pride leads to every excuse under the sun and why we deserve something that we know God would not approve of. And pride led the Corinthians to allow feelings of superiority over each other to dictate the way that they were living. So Paul first came to them with gentleness. He reminded them of what he already taught them. He referenced in chapter, four, uh, chapter 1 verse 4 that the grace of God was given to them, not earned by their pride and perceived superiority in Christ Jesus. He already knew that he already taught them the basics of their faith. 
Now in the next portion of his letter, he gently reminds them of what that practically means in a life based on Jesus' humility, where pride and self-centeredness have no place. But at the end of our passage this morning, Paul does warn the church that he will come to them with active and stronger discipline. His gentleness should not be mistaken for weakness and ineffectiveness as their spiritual father. But at the same time, he's giving them plenty of chances to make things right before it gets to that point. In the same way, God has already started out with the basic instruction for what he expects of us. He's already started out with that. So there are no surprises. Then he provides pastors, elders, and ministry leaders to teach those commandments, remind us what they are, and provide counsel on how best to follow, him, follow them. That is his gentle discipline. Giving the instruction, giving his expectations for us, providing pastors, elders, and ministry leaders to teach those commandments, remind us of what they are, and provide counsel on how best to follow them. But sometimes, if that instruction is not heeded, God will need to take a stronger and more active approach in his discipline of us. Sometimes the motivation for that is that we've just grown too complacent in this world. And we need to be shaken up a little bit to refocus our hearts and minds on the important things, the things of God. Sometimes the discipline is motivated by the fact that we just won't heed the instruction that God has already laid out for us in his word and the reminders and counseling of that instruction. In those cases, discipline will be used by God to, again, shake us up and point out to us that we still have not come into alignment with his commandments and his word. But again, that discipline is not to destroy us but to remind us that God loves us and that he's using that discipline to teach us and to lead us to alignment with his will and obedience to his commands. So when, we, when you see that you're going through a trial and testing of your faith, as we talked extensively about last week, it is always meant for our spiritual growth. Whether it be for redemption and a deepening of our faith or to shake us up, and get us to refocus our hearts and minds on God's will, or to lead us to repentance of disobedience of his commands and align ourselves with obedience to his commands. What is always going on, though, is a manifestation of God's love in our lives as our Father. We are his beloved children. And to remind us that he is actively at work in our hearts, He's not complacent with leaving us where he found us or being, in our minds, good enough. He's always making us more and more into the image of his son. That's his goal for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it lays out clearly truth. We thank you that it lays out clearly how you discipline us as our father. We thank you that you do discipline us. We thank you that you do teach us what your expectations and commands are, that we may seek to live our lives in obedience to those, not because we have to earn our salvation, but because of our, of our love for you. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. We thank you for sending your son to die for us. We thank you for rising him up again from the dead. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to indwell each and every one of us to make us more and more into the image of your Son. 
We thank you that you love us that much, that you're not, you're not fine with just leaving us at, at, at where we think we're good enough, but you are always taking us to deeper and deeper levels of faith and, and, and deeper and deeper levels of obedience and, and, and deeper and deeper uh, levels of you making us into the image of your son. We thank you that you are always actively at work in our hearts and we seek to live our lives in obedience to you out of our love for you. Not because we, we had that love to begin with, but because you first loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.